just a few moments, I'm going to bring someone on the show that I've been kind of, I guess, obsessing over or following or just loving to see all of the amazing work that they've done over the past few years. I found this artist uh, during the pandemic in 2020. Um, right when I started to have the pleasure of working on the Radically Loved podcast and when I started to get more serious about this podcast and this conversation, oh, I'm just so excited for you to hear it. Um, and also it really inspired me and reminded me of the things that in my, that the things that I do in my life that I love um, and the reason why that I do them because they bring me joy and that joy is inherent within me and Mira speaks to this so eloquently, but I thought I'd do something a little bit different today. I don't often jump in here pre-guest and give you a fun little extra, but today I felt inspired to share a poem um, from my book, The Dark Moon, a book poetry for Shavasana, which you haven't, if you haven't read it yet or haven't picked it up yet, it is available on Amazon. I self-published this baby. It's my first work of uh, poetry, and it was co-illustrated by my amazing, talented sister, Megan Benedictus. She drew these phases of the moon. So if you flip through the book, it's it's like you get to see the um, the phases of the moon change, you know, the waxing, the waning, the full, the the new moon. And so the the poem, I'm going to read a poem from my book today. <laughs> And um, spoiler alert, I uh, just felt inspired to share this because of my conversation with Mira. So here it is, the poem. This is called The Majesty of All There Is. This world is ethereal. It is, if you choose to see it that way. There's so much more beyond the tangible touch, taste, sight, sounds. Sit still and breathe. Breathe past your physical boundary. It is nothing but a mirage, a house to come home to, surely. But if we do not explore outside of our homely shell, why then, how will we ever come to know the majesty, mystery, magic of this deep, vast multiverse that is swirling all around us? So without further ado... Here is my conversation with the fantastic, talented, amazing artist, Mira Lee Patel. All right, everyone. Hello. Welcome to Outside the Studio. I'm having a fangirl moment. <laughs> this is one of my... Ugh. Mira Lee Patel is like one of my... Um, what's that? What's a different word for fangirl? It's like somebody that I aspire to. I've, I've been following her career, uh, since 2020. So it's been like three years now. And it's just, ugh. when I found Mira, I was like, oh my God, this magical unicorn exists in human form. And she's out there in the world, creating her art, sharing her wisdom. And the way that she's doing it is just I love it. I fucking love it. Sorry for the curse word, but <laughs> I can't be more emphatic about this interview. So just let me, if you haven't heard of Mira, get ready, sit down, ready to have your socks blown off, especially if you are a fan of art and poetry and journaling and all these beautiful, whimsical things that 
bring us so much joy in life. The cool thing about Mira is, in my opinion, she's a self-taught artist and the author of already several books um, and best-selling journals. So I love that she mixes these two mediums together. Um, and so some of her books that are already out and journals, My Friend Fear, Create Your Own Calm, that is a journal uh, made out of stars, and then Start Where You Are, which is another journal. And then the book that's coming out in May is How It Feels to Find Yourself, Navigating Life's Chal Changes with Purpose, Clarity, and Heart. And that's the one that I get to read and, and talk to her about today. And so if you're just listening, please, please, please go check out this beautiful work online. And then if you get the pleasure of watching us, you get to see it live here in person. Mira, how are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, yeah, I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. Well, so, okay, so... You probably get this all the time as an artist, um, but I guess I'm, I've been just thinking a lot about, you know, where do artists tap into that creative, that um, I love Elizabeth Gilbert's use of it, the elusive creative genius. Mm -hmm. you know, like, where does that creative vision come from within you? How do you find inspiration? I really think, you know, I am somebody who looks for a formula. I always think that maybe there's a correct path to tapping into creativity or inspiration or making something beautiful. And in my experience, that's never been true. Um, it's always come from showing up and being disciplined and doing the work, even when it doesn't feel good. So for me, inspiration has been not about waiting for it to strike me, but in finding it as part of the doing. So I show up and I write and I draw. And recently I've been really, really immersed in experimentation, um, which has been really scary because when you're experimenting, you're doing um, stuff you're not good at. You're, it's, it's your unpracticed eye and hand. And you're just seeing what will happen when you mix different mediums or ideas or thoughts or, you know, whatever it is you're working on. Um, but I found that after a year, a year and a half of being open to experimentation and to allowing myself um, to become really close to failure and making a lot of stuff that I don't like, I'm learning how to find inspiration and creativity and kind of those pockets of encouragement in this process. Mm. So I guess that's a long way of saying that finding inspiration is kind of training yourself to see it because it is everywhere and it doesn't just strike as an aha moment. Um, a lot of times it's found in the drudgery and in the monotony of practice and doing something over and over again, even when it doesn't feel good. <sighs> yeah. Okay. No, I love this answer because it's, it just speaks to the, um, 
the practicality, uh, I, I guess what I see is, is that we really oftentimes, and I do this, you know, we idealize people like you who have this um, level of success that they've reached, that they have this, um, and I mean, I want to dive into your story too, because you did leave a nine to five job and a big city to kind of like jump into this void of the unknown and see if you could make it on your own as an artist. And I think when we see somebody like you show up on the scene and you have this apparent, and I'm using air quotes here, level of success, we often idealize that as, oh, that person got lucky. Oh, they're just naturally talented, which in my opinion, you are. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, we kind of like forget about the brass tacks, the nuts and bolts of practically showing up for yourself every day, even when you don't want to, even when maybe you're tired or like right now, almost going to give birth to your second child. And um, is it okay that I said that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Cause that's another reason why it's like, <clears throat> I mean, so I'm thinking back to just for everyone out there who's listening, Mira, uh, I'm just so lucky to have found Mira by way of working with Rosie Acosta at Radically Loved on the Radically Loved podcast. And I remember because I got, I get to listen as part of my job. I get to listen to these podcasts before they go live and pick out some like nuggets, pearls and wisdoms and, and find some like really salient quotes. And I just remember listening to Mira's first interview with Rosie over and over again. And I myself felt so inspired. Um, and where was I going with this? Uh, gosh, I totally lost my train of thought. But I guess you can see that like I'm clearly, um, you know, inspired by the work that Mira does and thinking about here's where I want to go with this thinking about the journey that kind of started you on this path, Mira, if you would tell us a little bit about it. And, you know, I mean, now it's been years in the making. I think I heard you say you left Brooklyn in 2017 around there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I had been working full-time at a technical publishing company after I graduated college. So that was in my early twenties and I was there for nearly <clears throat> eight years and it was after the first year that I found myself really, really uh, discouraged and kind of, um, I was having a bit of an existential crisis, I will say, where I was like, I did all of the things that this American life told me to. Like I went to school, I got decent grades, I went to college, I got two degrees, I got the job after college. I did all the internships and now I'm working. And like, is this it? Is this the rest of my life? And is this what it looks like? And I felt so disenchanted because although I was very grateful to have a steady job and benefits and, you know, many things that a lot of people are not lucky enough to have, I didn't have any meaning in my life and I do think that without meaning um life is a a dark place and it doesn't it's difficult to find purpose um or a reason uh for existing really and I started writing and drawing because that is a practice that I've always identified with and that has always made me feel like me 
the thing that separates me from being just a cog in a in a machine. And so I started painting and writing again after hours. And I got involved on, I opened a little shop on Etsy and I got involved in the local like craft craft fair circuit and started selling like my handmade books and zines and greeting cards and things like that. And that's where I saw whole families, like, you know, partners with children who were making a living, selling their wares and their art. And they had homes and they had healthcare and they were living their lives, doing something that brought them meaning. And I told myself, you're going to be one of those people. And I started freelancing and working Um, on my art as a business, you know, like taking it seriously while I was working full-time. And it took me another seven years um, before it was 2017. And I finally worked up the courage to quit. Um, A big catalyst of that was that I had just sold my book, My Friend Fear, to my publisher. And now I had to write it. And it was a book all about fear. And I told myself, how can you tell other people to not let fear corrupt their lives when you're letting it corrupt yours? And so that year, I decided I was going to do all of the things that scared me. And I finally quit my job after almost a decade. And I left Brooklyn. And I traveled through the country by myself, something I was really scared to do as as a small very small woman um, in, you know, uh, our country is frightening to me now with a child more than ever. Um, And I traveled alone and I sat in my vulnerability and I wrote the book. And that year of, um, of listening to my fears and not letting them dictate the actions I would take really just put me on a whole new trajectory. Um, That was the year that I met my husband. That was the year that I left Brooklyn and moved to Nashville to live in a different part of the country. Um, I had never left the East Coast. That was the year I started working for myself and um, was able to spend all of my time in a meaningful way. And now so much has changed since that year, but it really was the year that was, that was the year that brought me to myself, I would say. Yeah. And so when you were, um, when you were on the circuit for create your own calm, this was when you were trying like a farm style life, (laughs) right? And you were like learning how to grow your own food and animals and yeah how was that did you enjoy that (laughs) it was a really really big and difficult adventure um because we bought we bought a farm on 20 acres right outside Nashville and we were really excited and my husband is from Texas and he's really you know, like he really spearheaded everything. He's so good with the animals. He's so good with the land. He really wanted to take a neglected piece of land and help it become fruitful again. 
and we had um, a huge greenhouse that we set up and we grew our own food. We had an orchard, we had a coop of chickens. He built the coop and we had fresh eggs every day. And it was so different because I'm such a city girl and I, I grew up in the suburbs of New York City and then I lived in New York City until I met him. And it was so different for me. For me, um, It was a really big adjustment. And I will say we found a lot of joy and a lot of validation and meaning in what we were doing. But we had a we got we got married on the farm on the farm also, which was incredible to get married at our home um, on our own land. But after that, it was the pandemic. And then we had the baby, our first child um, during the pandemic on the farm also. And it was a new sense of isolation. Um, we had nobody. We wouldn't see anybody ever. You know, we don't see, we don't live on, it wasn't on the road. Our driveway was about half a mile, three quarters of a mile long. So we really didn't see anybody for a year, a year and a half every single day. And we couldn't have help with the baby because of COVID and we were really scared. Um, I had a tough time being a first time new mom and feeling, you know, it's already an isolating time for a new mother. And then on top of that, to not be able to have friends come by or my family or anybody. Um, I think it was a hard time for us. And maybe if those hadn't been the circumstances, if the pandemic hadn't happened, um, maybe we would still be there. But I found myself really, really missing community and really missing the buzz of city life. And about three months after I gave birth, my husband really encouraged me to apply to a graduate program that I had been looking at in St. Louis. And I did, um, and I was accepted, and I was also awarded a fellowship um, to pursue my MFA um, in illustration and storytelling um, with a full ride. And we decided to, it was too good to be true. And so we sold the farm and we packed up the baby <laughs> and we moved to St. Louis when she was eight months old. And now we've been here for almost two years and I am going to have my second child next month. And then two weeks later, I will go back to school to defend my um, thesis and hopefully graduate. And so it's been another couple of blurry, fast paced years for us. Wow. Yeah. Wild. Well, congratulations on the full ride. That's so Thank well deserved. And I'm so excited to see what comes next out of that. That's so exciting. And um, so as I was preparing for this, I was remembering when you uh, were talking with Rosie about how, um, what it was like to um, be an artist, an illustrator, a writer, during your first birth, because she asked you something like, how was the creativity flow? How was the creativity uh, throughout your pregnancy? 
And yeah. I remember you saying something like, it's just gone. It's out the window. I'm exhausted. Um, and so second time around, I was curious to know if anything feels different. If You know how people say like, oh, this child is so different than the other one. This pregnancy yeah. is so different than the other one. Just yeah. To hear what this one's been like for you. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is a great question for me personally, because it's forcing me to reflect on the differences between the two. I will say my first pregnancy with um, Nadi, my daughter, was really hard. Um, it was really hard because for me, I just had um, constant nausea for the first seven months of the pregnancy, which is a really long time um, to be vomiting every day. So that was really hard for me physically. But I think emotionally, it was a lot harder because it was my first pregnancy. I was very anxious. And because of COVID, I was very isolated. And so I think I was very in my head and unable to find distraction or reprieve um, from what I think are very common and natural anxieties for first time um, mothers. Um, and the second time has also been hard physically. Like I just, I, my pregnancies are just difficult for whatever reason. Um, so although the nausea was the same and stayed for the same amount of time. And I have a toddler this time around and I'm in grad school and I'm in working. Um, it has felt emotionally very different. Like I know that there's an end and I trust that it will pass. And I think more importantly, emotionally, I feel a bit more stable because I have community. I'm not isolated. I am in an atmosphere every day where I'm interacting with people. I have homework. I have projects that are keeping me busy. And creatively, the past two years of grad school have forced me to work through my anxiety of, as an artist, I mean, of not being good enough or not feeling skilled or talented or being afraid to let myself down. I, I cycled through all of those emotions the first year of grad school. And now in my second year, I feel like, okay, like you work through those, they're all natural feelings, but the only thing that is going to get you to where you want to be is working at it diligently. And that means being awful until you're not and being bad at something until you're not. And if you really want it that badly, then you have to keep showing up and you have to keep doing the work and you have to be okay with the fact that, you know, most people aren't able to just pick up a new skill or um, medium or whatever it is, just like that and be good at it. They have to work at it. And there is, like you're saying, you know, you see talented or successful people and you think it comes naturally to them or you think, you know, they got lucky or they were, you know, born with this skill. It's innate. Um, but I think the truth of it is the only thing that separates those people from 
everybody else is that they choose to keep going and they don't give up. And that's, I think that's the only difference. And so I feel really comforted by that knowledge now. And I feel less, I, I'm not putting pressure on myself to reach any goal within a certain amount of time. Rather, I'm telling myself, if you keep working at it, like it'll happen one day. And I feel at peace with that now. I love that answer. I was literally just going to ask you what advice you would give to, you know, somebody in college who's, who's, or even pre-college, you know, um, high school thinking, I love to draw. It brings me so much joy or I love to write. It's just, you know, what if I could spend my life doing that? And then oftentimes we poo-poo the idea because we think I'll never make a living. I did this to myself. I talk about it all the time on this podcast. I'll never make it as a writer because a writer's life is miserable and I'll end up as a, you know, an alcoholic or something. I don't know where this story, this cultural narrative about like how an artist's life is misery, like really took hold within me. So I love what you're saying about this. And I guess what I'm wondering, and you really did answer the question, but I wondered if you wanted to add on to anything in terms of like that young, young person's perspective of, I want this life as an artist, but it feels so out of reach. It feels like this, I don't know, like, how could I ever make it in that world when there's so many other artists, there's so much competition, like why, why me? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I think the self-doubt and the feeling of discouragement and, you know, I tell my husband all the time because the books I make that have helped so many, you know, millions of people and have encouraged them to continue with their lives, I wrote them. And I'm someone who feels discouraged every day. I'm not a person who walks around feeling completely balanced or grounded or like a, you know, like an inspiration. That's not how I feel. Um, I feel very discouraged a lot of the time. I feel um, like things take a long time. I feel not good enough. I feel like I'll never get to where I want to go. But at the end of the day, I always, always, always choose to keep going. And I think more importantly, I choose to keep going, yes, but I want it badly enough that there is something inside me that doesn't let me give up. And every time I think about it, you know, I do think about it. I'm like, I could get, I could get another nine to five. I could not worry about getting more clients. I could not worry about paying for my own health care, especially with children, you know, like all the financial realities of working for yourself. It's it can be very difficult and overwhelming. And I do tell myself, you know, like I, I have another choice if I don't want to do this life anymore, but I always come back to, I love this life. And even if it's harder than another life, like this is the one I choose because this is the one that allows me to be the person I really feel I am inside And so I think that if that is what you're coming back to, 
that is the in, that's the internal guidance you need to keep going. And I do think that some people like the idea of an artist's life or a writer's life, but they don't like the reality of it. And that's okay. You don't have you don't have to, right? But I think that if you're going to get through the isolation, the loneliness, the self-doubt, the discouragement, all the tough parts about not only working for yourself, but having that artist, writer, creative brain, which can be simultaneously so encouraging and beautiful and what separates you from everyone, but also like really daunting and self-critical and um almost like harmful in some ways that in that internal spark is what's going to get you through it and it's important that you care for it and that you pay attention to it and that you do things that help your helps your inner creativity thrive so that you can get through those harder and tougher parts of creative life Mm, yeah thank you I was, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about are, is right now is your home studio, the, the place of work where you create your. Yeah. Books? Yeah. So I'm thinking about, you know, so many of us have made that transition to home offices and I'm curious, you know, well, this is kind of a multifaceted question, but becoming a mother of two, balancing that, having your work be at home, um, balancing that sacred time that you carve out for yourself in whichever way you carve it out. And actually, I'd love to hear about your um, daily kind of habits and behaviors around your work schedule and how you do balance that with your family and also how you stay motivated to work at home when they're so, it's so easy. Like I, I work at home too. It's so when, when the pandemic started and I shifted everything home, it was so easy for me to be like, Oh, well, I could do laundry right now. I could bake a batch of cookies. I could take the dog for a walk. And then literally the day is gone and I have done zero work. <laughs> so I'd love to hear your experience with this, how you balance it, what, what that kind of daily setup looks like for you. Um, I will say when the baby first came, it was a mess um, because it was just me and my husband and we couldn't have any help because of COVID. Um, we were just too scared to risk it. Um, so it was me and him taking shifts um, with the baby and whoever was off duty would work for a couple hours and then we would switch and so on. And it was absolutely exhausting. And it continued that way until we moved to St. Louis. And I actually even, he had to take a step back. We were, we both worked from home, but he had to really take a step back and work a lot at night because I started school. And so I had to physically be at school. And so he would be with the baby and then have to work when I got home and catch up on everything. And then when my daughter was one uh, year old, she finally was accepted into daycare. We were on the list for like eight months. So she went to um, school or daycare and that became a little bit easier because we would drop her off. I would go to school, he would work. We would pick her up, have a couple hours together as a family. And then I had to do all of my schoolwork and all of my work work at night because my whole day I'm sitting in class. 
So that was better, but also exhausting. But I think probably the reality for a lot of people who um, attend grad school while also working. Um, And there's no other parents in my class. I wish there were because that is like a whole different part of my grad school experience is so different from my classmates. Um, But as Nadi has gotten older, it's become a lot better. And now she goes to a school. She's there from like 8.30 to 3. And so we drop her off and I either go to class or I'm in my studio at home and I work and we, I'm just like totally regimented. I don't do anything like the house is a mess. It's not clean and I don't cook and I don't do anything else. I do my schoolwork and I do my actual work and that's all I have time for right now. And in May, um, well, the baby will come next month, but then I'll graduate in May. And I am this time taking a maternity leave. I did not do that <laughs> last time. When Nadi was born, I was writing, I was writing this book. So I had huge deadlines and I didn't sleep. And I didn't, you know, I was with her, but I don't feel like I was really present. I was always thinking about when do I get to work? When do I get to go to my work? When do I get to go to my work? And this time I feel um, like I need to give myself a break. And I'm taking a step back from work and I'm going to be with the baby and my daughter. And I think when I feel ready, I will slowly start integrating work back into my life. But I I really neglected myself the first time um, for my work because I didn't want to lose this thing, you know, my first child that I had worked so hard to build this career and to support myself and to do this thing that I never, ever, ever thought I'd be able to do. And it felt like letting myself down to say like, I'm going to stop working now because I have a, a child. And I think that when you work for yourself and you do something you love and that holds so much meaning and personal validation for yourself and that you enjoy and that gives you life. Like it's very different from taking a step back from a job where you're doing it, you know, from, for the paycheck, because I felt like I would be giving up on me and letting myself go. And this time I feel differently because I think I feel more confident that um, I trust myself more. I know that I will keep my career going. And I've, I, I realized, I guess, that while I didn't neglect the maybe creative or business side of me, I neglected my physical self, my mental self, my emotional self. And this time around, I want to give more space for those those parts and to focus on my health and my recovery and feeling good about myself postpartum, knowing that the creative side and the work side 
can only exist if those other parts do. So paying a little bit more attention to my health this time. Yeah. I still resonate with that idea though, that like you, you work so hard, you, you're starting to gain this momentum. You're starting to get these opportunities that it's so hard to say no to. And there's like almost this fear of, if I say no to this, then what if I miss my opportunity for that, you know, big break, quote unquote, big break, whatever that means for us. Um, but really, and truly, I think it's so important to honor that time of rest and um, the, the time to recover and the time, I think that's when, you know, like all of these ideas start to come in. Yeah. I've heard so many artists talk about that, like this idea of letting yourself be bored, letting yourself have free space to just do nothing and allow your mind to kind of wander. Yeah. So I commend you I for agree. that. I'm really, I'm actually like really, really excited about that. And I talked to a girlfriend maybe a year ago and I told her I was really worried. I was like, what if I have another kid and I work so hard to get to grad school and then my, you know, my grad school experience will be compromised because, you know, what if the pregnancy is hard again? Just like thinking about all the planning and do I want to have a million things happening at once? Because life has felt that way, but it's like, you know, always a million big things at once. And I like to focus on one thing at a time and very type A in that, in that regard. And she was like, what if, you know, yeah, what if you get pregnant during grad school and it's really hard? Like, yeah, it'll be hard, but it'll be hard either way, whether you're in grad school or not. And you get through it because you'll get through it. And then she said, you have the baby and, and yeah, what if you do disappear for a little bit? Like, what if that is what happens? And she said, what if you do just like rest and disappear and go quiet? And it's in that time that this new artist that you've been working towards becoming like really has a chance to like bloom and like start to take shape. And then when the baby is a little bit older and you're ready to get back into work full time, like you have all of these ideas and inspiration and new ways of being that you've cultivated during that rest period, which, you know, to be honest, won't happen if you don't ever take a rest period or if you don't give yourself space for new things to grow and form and take and take shape. So I've let those words, that was like a really big, that forced me to see things differently, um, that conversation with her. And it has given me a lot of comfort during this, you know, overwhelming year. And as I prepare to take a step back from everything, I feel really comforted by it. And I feel like it is going to be a year of like amazing inner growth. And I don't, I don't even know what creative things are going to come to me during this year where I step back. And that feels really exciting to not even know, like I'm going to be surprised mm. and that feels awesome. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. This has me thinking about, um, 
like different seasons of our lives that we go through, you know, I mean, you're right now in this uh, gestation period where you're going to head into maybe like a season of quiet and recuperation and just like nesting with your family, which is so beautiful. Um, and it really, it really relates to this book you have coming out, how it feels to find yourself navigating life's changes with purpose, clarity, and heart. And I really love, I'm so right now, I'm just kind of like rereading this section on uh, well, in particular, I have the book open to page 95, what it feels like to care for my parents. And I've been going through this in a really big way lately. This spring, my my um, mom, she fell and fractured her jaw in two places. It actually happened on my birthday. And so it was such an interesting perspective to spend my birthday in the hospital with my mom um, with her fractured jaw and just kind of like, be like, okay, well, this is what it's going to be like. You know, you say, I love what you say here in this, on this, the top of page 95, at some point in our lives, we stop seeing our parents solely as caregivers and more as individuals, people like us with their own collections of dreams, disappointments, anxieties, and needs. We enter a gray area and in in between place where consideration for our parents begins to affect the decisions we make. And then you go on to say it's impossible to prepare for this transi- transition because you don't know when it will happen. And that's where I was like, oh, my God, this is actually happening to me right now. And it's such a weird I always think of this line from uh, the Indigo Girls, which is one of my favorite bands. <laughs> and there's just this little line, I can't remember what song it is, but when you feel the tables turn, and that's exactly what it felt like. It's like, okay, I'm no longer a child. Now mm-hmm. I'm my parents' caregiver. Mm-hmm. And I have to figure out how to do this. Luckily, I have a supportive sister. My father's very supportive of it. We're trying to figure this out together as a family, but it's so like, wow, our lives are changing. You know, we're oh. entering this different season of our life. Um, clumsy. Am I doing this right? Do they feel do they feel safe and cared for? And just all of these really poignant questions you ask in this section of the book and the whole book, actually. But oh, I just I was curious if you could tell me a little bit about the impetus of this book in particular. Um, you know, you don't have to speak to that chapter, that section that I was just talking to. But where did the inspiration for this book come from? Um, I would say like the guiding foundation for all of my work is wanting people to feel connected to themselves so that they, they aren't floundering when it comes to decision-making about the relationships they choose to be in, the friendships they choose to keep, the career goals that they set for themselves, all of these things. There's a lot of I think, um, uncertainty in life, of course, but also within people. And I really want people to feel confident in who they are. And I want them to know who they are, because I think that is the core of being able to Be a healthy person when you when you know who you are, you know what your boundaries are, you can accept another person into your life without compromising yourself. 
You can give yourself to your work without letting it govern you. You can learn how to say no to toxic behaviors, both self-initiated and if you find um, yourself in a toxic environment um, with people you know, in the workplace or in your friendship or in your relationship or anywhere. So this book really came from, I think, my own um, big life transitions, getting married and moving on to a farm from, you know, for a city girl, things like that. Things that I think in a lot of ways I thought would be only beautiful and not also difficult. and. I think the truth of life is that the beautiful things in life are usually also the most difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel okay with that. I feel um, that makes sense to me, but I want, I, the purpose of this book is to help other people understand that also that just because something is difficult or hard, that doesn't make it any less beautiful or meaningful or not worth having, you know, just because your relationship is, is really difficult and requires lots of effort. That doesn't mean it's not healthy. That doesn't mean, you know, you should give up on it just because like we were just talking about, like pursuing your creativity, trying to make, the life you imagined happen for yourself, like just because it's grueling and it's not falling into place and you don't feel like any doors are open to you, that doesn't mean it's not worth going after and pursuing. And so this book, the foundation of it is to help people understand that the entire spectrum of human emotion is valid. Sadness, difficulty, loneliness, anger, depression, like these are all feelings that teach us things, teach us how to be with ourselves, teach us what we want and don't want out of life and other people and becoming comfortable with them and choosing to um, not chase happiness, which is temporary and externally based, but instead choosing to cultivate joy, which can live inside you and can be found even when you're grappling with your parents' health or how to care for them or what to do next. You can still cultivate that sense of purpose and joy and confidence inside yourself. Um, That is, I think, the healthier and more, how do I say, not wholesome, but it's a That is what makes life whole, like the good and the bad, the sad, the joyful, all of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think this book I wrote just to encourage people to kind of see how life is made up of a lot of balances and duality and that, you know, we hear it all the time, but most of life is in that gray area, 99% of it in the in-between in the uncertainty, in the unknown, where we just don't know what's going to happen next. And I know I know that feels so unnerving and scary, but um, 
learning to feel confident in that area, in that gray space, learning how to listen to yourself, to hear yourself, to kind of quiet everybody else's voice. I think that is the key to being able to navigate big life transitions um, and the key to making decisions that reflect who you are and that will get you closer to that life that you want for yourself. Oh, that's so beautiful, Mira. Thank I feel like I rambled a little bit. <laughs> no, I love it. I could listen to you ramble all day. <laughs> really, <laughs> truly. Um, so is there, I just, I'm curious if there's like any last thing that you, any question that I didn't ask you that you were hoping to speak to or any, you know, key takeaway from this book or any of your books. I mean, you really did just kind of sum it up very nicely, but I wanted <laughs> to give you the opportunity to put the cherry on the top before we say goodbye? Um, I think I just wanted to tell you one of my favorite essays in the book is the last one, which is how to keep going. Mm -hmm. And it really speaks to the kind of the drudgery of life, the times where you're doing the dishes for the 500th time. And you're like, Oh my goodness, like, do I have to do dishes every day for the rest of my life? And you know, thinking about like something that came from COVID is everyone's like sick of cooking and thinking about what to eat and all of that. Like just that, that like the monotony where you're like, I want to feel creative and inspired. And instead I'm doing laundry again and I'm cooking again and I have to take the dog out again. And that essay is my favorite because I think it speaks to how to find joy and purpose in those small those small monotonous um moments in life and how a simple phone call with a loved one can kind of turn your day around or how feeling connected to the earth when you go for a walk um can lift your mood and make you see things differently and how that that small shift in perspective, you know, similar to how we were talking about, like, where do you find inspiration? Once you start practicing it, you can reach for and activate those small shifts in perspective more and more frequently and with ease. And it doesn't feel like work. And so um, I just wanted to point out that essay and that I hope it'll be helpful for people. And it helped me while I was writing it. Yeah. Oh, Mira, thank you so much. I want to point out to listeners that you do have a beautiful, I could just sit. Another thing I could do is sit and stare at your Instagram grid. All <laughs> Gorgeous. It's full of all of your artwork. Um, and then I just discovered you have Substack, which uh, generates a weekly email, I think, right? Or a oh. weekly newsletter. Um, and so will you just quickly tell us what those handles are? I'll make sure they go in the show notes, but I always like to hear sure. it in the author's own words. Um, my Instagram is at Miralee Patel. And my Substack is also miraleepatel.substack.com. And my Substack newsletter is actually called Dear Somebody. And I send it out most Fridays. And it is a short note that chronicles five things that I want to remember from each week. So it's usually a personal moment from my week that I really um, don't want to forget, along with um, creative inspiration, reflections on motherhood and parenthood, um, and things that kind of fuel me 
and encouraged me to keep making and keep putting myself out um, into the world and connecting with other people and kind of living in the most genuine and connective way I can. Thank you so much for this work. I'm so grateful you're here in in this world and sharing it with us. Um, And I'm so excited to see what you do next. Uh, You know, definitely give yourself that rest. I'm I'm so glad to hear that you're doing that. And um, I'm excited to see what comes out of it. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, Mira. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. Everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius, Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go around. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.